evidence and answers. How can Christians effectively share Christ with those from different cultures and different religions? A common mistake many Christians make is that we fail to contextualize the gospel to our audience. You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on our show, Pat and his guest, Dr. Daniel McCoy, will be sharing how to contextualize the gospel so that it is clearly understood by those in different cultures and religions. Now with part one is our host, Pat. You're listening to Evidence and Answers, where we provide compelling evidence for faith and hope in Christ and biblical answers to the issues of today. Well, we have a special interview here today with Dr. Daniel McCoy. He is the editorial director for Renew.org, based in Franklin, Tennessee. And Dr. McCoy has a Ph.D. from Northwest University and teaches philosophy, world religions, and ethics at Ozark Christian College there in Joplin, Missouri. And he is an author of several books. And the one we're talking about today is a newly published book on the world religions called the Popular Handbook of World Religion. So, Daniel, welcome to Evidence and Answers. Hey, good to be here. Thank you. Yes, Daniel. Now, tell us a little bit about the organization you work for, Renew.org. What are they all about? Yeah, so at Renew.org, we renew the teachings of Jesus to fuel disciple-making. We're all about fueling disciple-making, helping individuals and churches to be able to get back to making disciples who make disciples and and if that's the road that we're trying to fuel people down disciple making we you know there are a couple of ditches on either side that we want to avoid on the one hand would be kind of ineffective traditionalism and on the other hand kind of an unfaithful progressivism so if we you know for people who want uh, both effective and faithful disciple making that's what we're all about uh, it sounds like a great organization there to check out. Now, we're talking about your book here, The Popular Handbook of the World Religions. And give us a brief overview. What is this book all about and what does it cover? Yeah, so uh, it's a book that I edited and uh, we had about 20 scholars who put it together and I just couldn't be more pleased with how it turned out. Obviously, we have the article or the, the chapters on each major religion. We've also got some introductory uh, chapters on things like, you know, should we do cross-cultural missions? And obviously the answer to that is yes, but there's a lot of, op- you know, a lot of objections to that. And so tackling some of those objections, we have a chapter on how to contextualize the gospel, um, tough questions about religion by Wynn Cordo. And I, I think Wynn has been on the show before. Oh, yes. Um, now, then we have a very important chapter, some people's favorite chapter, and it's towards the end, and it's called Stories of Coming to Christ. And this is by Patrick Zuckerman. And so uh, I love this chapter. It gives uh, story after story of people coming to Christ from other religions. And so, yeah, it's just a really fun, accessible read, gracious tone, but really gets at the heart of how can we understand these other religions and how can we become true friends to people of other religions and how can we try to gently lead them toward a relationship with Jesus? Yes. Let's talk just briefly about chapter three here, which is... Fantastic. You know, how to contextualize the gospel. What? That's a very outstanding chapter. Tell us about that one. Yeah, it, it really is. I Ching Thomas wrote that, and she also wrote another book in which this is kind of a, uh, a summary of, of a lot of what she wrote in this other book on how to be culturally Chinese. 
but also a faithful Christian. And she comes at this question from a lot of experience of how can, how can you be, you know, in a very different culture from the West, and yet how can you cultivate a faithfulness to Jesus in that? And so, uh, you know, talks about how, and this, this is a fascinating uh, statement she makes. She says, you know, Jesus is the answer, but what is the question? And just with the realization that different cultures are asking vastly different uh, questions, you know, Buddhism, for example, is a whole different worldview. It's, it's very, very different categories than what we find in Christianity. And yet, for the Buddhist, Jesus is the answer. And so we just need to figure out what, what are the questions people are asking and then um, show how Jesus is the answer to that that longing of the heart that people have. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a really helpful, really practical chapter. And yeah, it's definitely worth the read. Yes, and I think that's one thing people need to understand when we're going into different cultures, even here in the United States, you know, people from different backgrounds. Uh, the message doesn't change, but the method and sometimes the way it's packaged and the issues that, you know, need to be addressed are different among different cultural groups around the world and even here in the United States. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Thinking like a missionary, even in, even in the United States, I think is very important, realizing that, you know, maybe there was a time when we had home court advantage, and that's obviously slipping away. We need to be able to think like a missionary. We need to be able to think like, how can I really, in this culture, whatever culture I'm dealing with, how can I really bring Jesus into in a way that's attractive and authentic and faithful to the gospel? Yes. Now, another chapter I was a little surprised about, but I enjoyed reading it, was Objections to Cross-Cultural Evangelism. Now, what are the objections? You know, first of all, why are there objections and what are they? That's a great question. Why would there be objections? Not every religion is a missionary religion. You know, Buddhism would be one. Christianity would be one. I think a lot of it has to do with, in the Western culture, people tend to think that truth and religion are kind of separate categories. And so just let people believe what they believe. Don't try to convince people when it comes to matters of spirituality and religion, because it's it's separate from truth. Now, as Christians, we believe, no, uh, Jesus Jesus said he is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, he, he brings all that together. But again, in the West, it's become kind of fashionable to separate truth from spirituality. And so I think that's one reason why there's an objection to trying to persuade people of Christianity, you know, to kind of the impulse to say, hey, just let people believe what they want to believe. Now, there's also a kind of a, a historical reason for objections, and that would be that there have been times that uh, Christians, or, or at least people uh, in the name of Christianity, have gone in other cultures and they've brought missions, but it hasn't been in the spirit of Christ you know, maybe it's been because of colonialization that, that the door has opened up uh, for missionary. And so, and so the two get made synonymous. And so, yeah, the, I, I think there's definitely a historical reason for why people aren't a big fan of uh, missions anymore. But as far as we tackle some of those objections in that chapter and, and show that, you know, truly the, the gospel is something that as Christians, you know, it is best news. And if we really do love people, we'll share the gospel. Yes. And also the growing, you know, pluralism, this idea that really all religions are equal and valid ways to God seems to be growing in the church. You know, even evangelical churches are struggling with this whole issue, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. And I think any evangelical church that really emphasizes the this worldly benefits of the faith, but doesn't emphasize 
the eternal aspects of the faith. I think that any any church like that is just going to tee people up to accepting the idea that all religions are basically the same. Because if you think about it, you know, I can find something in about every religion that could help me cope, help me get through this life at some level, some better than others, but every religion is going to have something in it that's going to help me to have a better life right now, for the most part. And so if this life is all that matters, then why say that one religion is, you know, more true than another? And so I would say that there's a there's a huge danger in just preaching, you know, the this worldly benefits of the faith and ignoring the eternal ramifications of the faith. I mean, I, I think that when we when we have that out of proportion imbalance, that it's just setting people up to accept religious pluralism. Yes, you know, and another thing I run into is I think being an apologist and coming from this perspective, you know, a lot of people have a wrong understanding of what it means to believe or what Christian faith really means. I was talking to a pastor the other day about a dialogue I was having, you know, with the Buddhist here in Hawaii, which is very prominent here in Hawaii. And, you know, I was saying, well, one of the issues that I asked are my Buddhist friend here is how do you know that the things that you believe are true? How do you know? And the pastor immediately jumped in. He says, nobody knows. Nobody knows. It's all about faith. Everything is about faith. Even Christianity. You, you, you can't prove Christianity is true. You know, it's all about faith. Mm. And I run into that a lot of times. Do you, do you wow. see that as a particular barrier or problem here in, in Christians misunderstanding of what Christian faith yeah. is all about. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, I think that is a a prevalent problem. Uh, and I think it, you know, the, the root of the problem is that's just not biblical faith. Mm-hmm. The, biblical faith is so much more about who the object is. You know, if it's Disney faith, it's like just kind of believe in a gen- generic sense and then good things will happen. Okay, well, that, that would be something that doesn't really matter too much the particulars, but when it comes to biblical faith, it's all about the object of your faith. You know, the, the good or it, whether it's good faith or bad faith is all dependent upon, uh, or I should say whether it's an intelligent faith or not intelligent faith, it all has to do with the object of the faith. Is the object of the faith someone we can trust? All sorts of people are placing their faith in something that is going to end up disappointing them. It's when we place our faith in Jesus that, uh, anyway, I, I think that when it comes to placing our faith in Jesus, you know, that's, it's a tremendous difference from all the other types of faith you can, you can put your, um, your wholehearted trust in. And, I, and, and the thing about biblical faith is it's, it's not just a matter of, I believe this belief. It's also a matter of a wholehearted embodied allegiance to whatever you're, you're putting it into. And so anyway, I, I would just say that it all depends on what the definition of faith is. And biblical faith is so much sturdier is so much more hardy than, you know, just, just the Disney type of faith in faith. Yeah, you know, Norm Geisler always said, biblical faith is taking a step in the direction where the evidence leads. So yeah. Christian faith is built on solid evidence and reasons. You know, there are good reasons why we can take a step in that direction. It's just not some kind of blind leap in the dark. And what we're saying is that Christianity has the best and most compelling evidence and reasonable arguments for its case over any other religion or worldview. Yeah, I I love that line by Norman Geisler. 
In fact, both of us have written a book with Geisler. Am I right? Didn't yeah. Mm-hmm. Apologetics of Jesus with him? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, I have that book on my shelf. That's a great book. Yeah. Now, you stated that there are 10 valuable lessons you learned in writing this book on the world religions. So why don't you uh, take us through some of them? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So the first lesson that I learned going through this process of editing this book and working with these world religion scholars is that religious persecution is a bridge and not a badge. What I mean by that is when you look at the history of these religions, we're all persecuted at some level. We've all been persecuted at at some point in our history. Hmm. And so the idea that, well, because I'm a persecuted minority, that therefore, you know, my religion is better or I'm more holy I think that that's kind of a mistaken view. We need to realize that, you know, Judaism has had a history of pogroms and Holocaust, and you have Sikhism, and, uh, you know, what early leader among the Sikhs wasn't killed for their faith? And and even Mormonism has a history of persecution in the United States, even Muslims being persecuted in China, and even atheists and, and Unitarian Universalists, you look at their history, there's a lot of persecution there. And so I think that that's one lesson I learned is that when we can recognize that there's persecution maybe happening toward another religion or, or towards yourself, it's a time to really uh, see that as a bridge-building opportunity and not as a, well, you know, I, I'm a persecuted minority, but, but rather to be able to build bridges with other people of other faiths and to say, hey, yeah, sorry for what you're going through or sorry for what you've been through. So we can build some solidarity that way. So that'd be one thing. Another lesson that I learned through this process is that religious effort is impressive. You know, across the board, there's a lot of, you know, really impressive feats of religious activity that people do, but it's often heartbreaking. Some of the examples of of religious effort would be, you know, the Muslim fast during the month of Ramadan. You have some really significant meditative efforts Mm -hmm. uh, with Sikhs and Hindus. You know, you have some heartbreaking renunciation on behalf or, you know, by Buddhist monks and nuns. You've got Gautama himself who left his wife and his child to go find enlightenment. You have in Jainism what's called the voluntary death fast, where somebody basically starves himself to death to achieve the release. And so I find that impressive on one hand, but also a lot of it very heartbreaking and as Christians, we recognize, as Philippians 3.16 says, that it says, only let us live up to what we have already attained. The idea with Christianity is we've already been placed in a position of being saved, of, of being made into a beloved child of God. We don't have to do this effort in order to attain these things. And uh, it, it is heartbreaking when you see people who go through very difficult things, and really it's, it's not for a good goal. It's a futile effort. Yeah. So yeah, those are a couple of uh, lessons. Yeah, you know, uh, one of the reasons that, you know, I have a, such a burden for uh, my Buddhist friends, you know, as you mentioned, Buddhism teaches that this world really is an illusion. And therefore, pain and suffering comes as a result of being attached to things in this world. And that includes relationships, too. And so the way to escape pain and suffering is complete detachment from the illusionary things of this world, including relationships, you know, and dreams and goals and complete detachment. And that comes to the elimination of desire. And I find that, as you know, you stated, heartbreaking because it's really, I think, dehumanizing. And also you need to reject reality 
to make that kind of commitment. And I think it's dehumanizing because according to the Bible, we are designed for love and for relationships. You know, in fact, God himself is a trinity. He's in a relationship. And so that's what we're designed for. And to complete detachment from what you were designed and created for, like you said, it's heartbreaking. But for me, it's also I'm looking at it and I see that as, you know, rejection of reality and rejection of your humanity. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, the Bhava Kakra, which is a, a kind of a, a model of the Buddhist universe, depicts all the, the wheel of existence. It has the heavens, it has the hells, and in the center of this model called the Bhava Kakra, you've got the three poisons. You've got the, you know, the lust and greed. And, and anyway, the whole Buddhist universe is held in the jaws of a demon. And that's a picture of reality according to Buddhism, that all of life is suffering, all of life is impermanence, all of life is futility, and uh, a little bit of Ecclesiastes in there, except that in Buddhism, you don't have the centrality of God. And even when you move outward from that Buddhist universe, the very, very depressing picture, what's out there that to escape into, it's nirvana, but even nirvana is something that we can't really know what it is. It's, it's characterized by all of the nons and the knots and, you know, all of the things that we, we can't know about nirvana. And so it has to be even among, I mean, there are Buddhists who are going to talk about the beauty of purposelessness and the beauty of really not knowing about reality and, and the impermanence of everything. But at the end of the day, as Christians, we have a worldview that's grounded on something that we can trust, and that's God. And, the you know, that, uh, yes, Buddhism is right in the sense that people die. And so they'll let you down in that way. Uh, stuff rots. Even great minds will, you know, run out of new ideas. And however, at the center of things in the Christian worldview is a God that we can trust. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. And so I hope that we're able to communicate that to the Buddhist who, who has to know in, in their gut that there is something more out there. It can't all be empty. Yes. Now you say a third one, which sounds really interesting. Wacky can be understandable. What do you mean by that? Yeah, great question. I, you know, I think it's easy to look at a religion in a cursory way and say, oh, that's so wacky. That's so crazy. That doesn't make any sense. And, you know, it, and there are wacky elements to every religion, I suppose. But I think, you know, one of the lessons I learned in, in editing this book is that if you take a step back and you look at the big picture, you look at the context, Wacky does become understandable, you know, so take Buddhism, for example, you know, the, the belief that all life is suffering. You look at that, you say, that, that's not true. All of life isn't suffering. But, you know, Gautama was quite insightful in that he showed that even some of the greatest moments in life are, are futile and fleeting and, again, Ecclesiastes. And so if you look at the whole context, if you really do believe that all of life is held in the jaws of a demon, uh, then, then that belief all life is suffering doesn't become quite as wacky. You know, Jains, uh, some Jains will wear a mask in order to prevent breathing in a bug. And you look at that and say, that's wacky. But if you believe that the number one ethic is nonviolence, you know, that, that that's the main goal in life is to be nonviolent and that you have to get rid of all of your karmic matter in order to purify your soul. And you believe that's how the world works then wearing that mask isn't so wacky. And so I just 
I, I say that because I think it's helpful to take a step back, look at the whole context. You still won't ag- agree with it, but it, it'll become less wacky. It'll become more understandable the more you can at least look at the context. Yes, as you're going through some examples, one that came to my mind, I don't know if you can address this one, but I find you know certain things in Islam to be kind of wacky. The promise of eternal virgins there in paradise or something like Mormonism, the ability of man to you know become a God as God the Father and Jesus did and to rule your own planet with your spirit wives producing spirit children for the next planet. I sit there, I sit back and I just can't wrap my hand around how does so many millions of people embrace or believe this kind of stuff. Yeah, those two examples in particular, to me, they almost strike a note of I can kind of see why those would be attractive, why people would be drawn to those beliefs. I, I, especially Mormonism, for example, you know, it's like Christianity in some ways, but in other ways, it's very Americanized, an upwardly mobile divinity, you know, that God mm-hmm. was with us and now he's God and we can become that as well. And so, uh, and, and Joseph Smith, you know, was not just the religious leader, but he was also a military leader. I think he ran for president. I mean, there's just a lot of Americanized elements in that. And so, yeah, I think, there's a sense in which some of those elements in the religions make some sense, whereas there are elements within Christianity that I kind of need to be enabled by the Holy Spirit to really get behind because they are so counterintuitive to what my flesh would desire. So, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. Now, another lesson you said you learned, patience is powerful. Tell us about that one. Yeah, and that's a lesson I learned in reading through your chapter, uh, the one on stories of people coming to Christ, because story after story of people coming to Christ from another religion, it wasn't a one-time Damascus Road experience. It was typically a relationship of patience and people having gentle persuasion, uh, giving people gentle persuasion and, and just tons of love along the way as when Cordelin says, you know, people love their religion. It's a part of them. It's their, it's their culture. It's their identity. And so if they um, are to leave behind, uh, you know, their religious identity, they need time to grieve those beliefs that they're giving up. And so it just puts emphasis on the centrality of patience. Can God save somebody in an instant? Absolutely. You know, there can be an instantaneous uh, response to an altar call. Absolutely. However, I think most of the time, it's a long process, and we need to be able to have patience toward people. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point, you know, how people, their religion is part of them, their culture, their ancestry, and to suddenly leave it all behind. You stated it well, there's a grieving process that needs to take place before they can leave that behind and embrace the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I think that's pretty well stated that that a lot of people don't understand that there needs to be a grieving process that takes place when you're leaving practically your your culture and your heritage for many of us, you know, who have come out of different religions to come to faith in Christ. Yeah, so true. And Jesus spent three years with the disciples and by the end of it, they, they still weren't exactly where they needed to be. They obviously needed the Holy Spirit, but, you know, just a tremendous amount of tenderness and patience, long-suffering that Jesus had towards these guys who, by then, they should have gotten it, and uh, so many of them didn't. So, yeah, and I know God shows patience to me every day. I'm so thankful for that. I can show it to others. Yeah, and and like you said, you know, kind of repeating what Paul says, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, 
God gave the growth. Uh, he who plants and he who waters are one. So some of us are planters, and then some of us are going to be those who, you know, uh, water that seed that was planted, and some will have the privilege of reaping the harvest, but everyone has a part to play, and I think most of us will be in that planting or watering stage, uh, a point that you, you bring out. Uh, that That's really important for people to understand, isn't it? Oh, yeah, that's so good. I had a professor in college when I went to Ozark, and he uh, during one of the chapel services, he laid a whole bunch of papers out on the platform, you know, maybe 20, 20 blank papers just in a row. And he said, this represents somebody's path to coming to know Jesus. And you might be this guy. You may, you may be this paper here. Uh, every one of them is important. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners, or the opportunity to donate. Head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarello.